It is very easy for us to assume that the Apostle Paul was a fully mature Christian who had it all together from the moment he became a Christian. That's probably the way many people view the Apostle Paul. You know, he's going on the road to Damascus, he's struck down, he's converted, and he just never sinned from that point forward. Or maybe, you know, some little trivial things, but, you know, he had it all together. Well, if that's your view of the Apostle Paul, it's not an accurate view by any means. Just like you and me, he had to grow, and he had to develop, and he had to learn, and he had to make progress in the Christian life. And we will see that in the text that we're going to consider for this message. So let's turn to the fourth and final chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. And please follow along as I read verses 10 through 18. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless... You have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Now not that I speak, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I, I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. As you can see from reading through these verses, verses 10 through 23 of this chapter are very personal in tone. As Paul expresses his thanks to his dear friends in Philippi for their financial support of his needs and his ministry. As I've said in the past in this series on Philippians, that is one of the things that created an even stronger bond between Paul and these believers. Many commentators have suggested that Paul was closer to this church than any other church with which he worked. And as you study this letter, in comparison with all of his other letters, I believe the evidence backs up that assertion. Now, Paul had a tremendous capacity to love those who did not treat him well, and a tremendous capacity to love those he'd never even met. Just read Colossians 2, verses 1 and 2. But Paul was human. He had feelings. He wasn't a robot. He wasn't a machine. So even though he loved those who did not treat him properly, and even though he loved those he'd never met, he possessed a unique love for the Philippians because of their reciprocation of love. The Philippians reciprocated Paul's love more than any other group of people, and that strengthened the bond between them. 
That's why he said what he did back in chapter 1. Go back just a few pages to chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And then down in verse 7, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now most of our English translations sort of soften the literalness of verse 8 because it doesn't sound very appropriate to translate it literally, but it reads this way literally. God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the bowels of Jesus Christ. And the reason Paul said it that way is because when you really miss someone, when you really yearn for someone, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. If you've ever been homesick or if you've ever been separated from someone you love or lost someone, you know that the aching is in the pit of your stomach. It's in your bowels. And Paul says here, God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the bowels of Jesus Christ. I feel it deeply in my stomach. So Paul loved people with the love of Christ even when they didn't deserve it. But you cannot deny the fact that loving relationships with lovable and loving people contribute to a unique kind of joy. All that to say there was a special bond and relationship with the Philippians because they loved Paul in return and demonstrated it by being there for him. They stood by him through the years with their prayers and with their support. They didn't turn on him when he was imprisoned. Evidently, some did, according to the later verses in chapter 1. But the Philippians stood by him. They demonstrated their love to him. They sent Epaphroditus to bring him a gift and to minister to him there in Rome where he was under house arrest. And when he was in Thessalonica for only three weeks, these believers took two offerings and sent them to him for his needs and for his ministry. So their expressions of love to him strengthened the love bond that was already there. He loved these people in a unique way, and their expressions of love brought him joy. Notice how he referred to them over in chapter 4, verse 1. He says this as he opens up the final chapter of this letter. He says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. The word translated longed for here in this verse means to strain or reach for something. It was a word used for an athlete stretching for the finishing line as he's trying to cross the line before all of his competition. Paul yearned for these believers. He loved them with the agape love of Christ, but I also believe that he loved them with the phileo, deep friendship kind of love, because they were lovable in that way, and they loved him that way. So this closing section of Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, is basically a thank you. It's the thank you part of the letter for their gifts and their support and their love. As we saw when we studied verse 9 last week, Paul encouraged the Philippians to follow his example. He says in verse 9, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, 
These do, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul was not pridefully holding himself up as an example. He wasn't being prideful. It's just that the Lord had worked in his life and molded him into a man of God, and Paul recognized God's grace in his life. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he said, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul knew that he was what he was by the grace of God, and he responded to that grace to discipline himself unto godliness. That is why he was able to encourage others to follow his example as he does in verse 9. Paul didn't teach one way and live another. He lived what he taught. We see his example in this section involving verses 10 through 19. Verses 10 through 19 are, are basically an expansion or an illustration of what Paul taught the Philippians in verses 4 through 9. Now, I don't know that Paul purposely tried to make verses 10 through 9 or 19, 10 through 19 illustrate what he taught in verses 4 through 9, but the Spirit of God put those sections together as a unit. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you how these are related. In verse 4, Paul exhorts the Philippians to rejoice always. And in verses 10 through 12, he indicates that he rejoiced always, regardless of his circumstances, regardless of his difficulties. In verse 6, Paul exhorts the Philippians not to worry. And in verses 10 through 12, he indicates that he was not anxious about his circumstances. He didn't worry. Instead, he experienced the peace he talked about in verse 7. In verse 9, Paul exhorts the Philippians to follow the formula that leads to the assurance that the God of peace is with you. And in verses 10 through 12, he indicates that he had the confidence that the God of peace was with him. So it's really a, a unique relationship between what he exhorted in verses 4 through 9, what he taught, and then how it's exemplified in his life as he expresses it in verses 10 and following. So my point is this. Paul modeled what he taught. Let's consider his example. In verse 10 he says this, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Basically what Paul is saying here in verse 10 is that he knew his friends had not forgotten him. He knew that they just didn't have the opportunity to express their love and their support. They had been concerned when they heard about his imprisonment back in, or his arrest in Jerusalem, and then his time in prison out at Caesarea by the sea, and then his, his, his travels to Rome, and then his house arrest in Rome for at least a couple years. They had been concerned. They wanted to help, but they lacked opportunity to help. That's so different than many Christians today who have the opportunities but lack the concern. Paul knew that his friends had been concerned, but they had lacked the opportunity to help. He was confident and secure in their love for him. I see in this statement of Paul here a mark, a characteristic of true biblical love. Let me explain what I mean. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 indicates that love believes the best about others. True love doesn't believe the worst. True love is not suspicious or cynical. 
In other words, love gives the benefit of the doubt. And here, Paul's words indicate in verse 10 that he gave the Philippians the benefit of the doubt. He didn't assume the worst about them just because there had been no contact for a long time. He didn't assume the worst. He gave them the benefit of the doubt. Could I exhort you to do the same thing in your relationships? Don't be quick to assume the worst regarding the motives or actions of friends and loved ones. This is a, this is a real problem in relationships. It's, it's the problem of self-talk. Self-talk is when you, you don't really know why someone has done or not done something, or maybe even what has been done. You don't know, but you assume things, and you begin talking to yourself in anger. Don't worry, I won't take a poll to see how many do that. But you know what I'm describing, because you've done that very thing in relationships with friends, loved ones, a spouse, whoever. You don't know the whole story. You don't know why what was done was done or why what didn't happen didn't happen. But you assume and you talk yourself into anger or resentment. Friends do this in their relationships with one another. Husbands and wives do this in their marriage. If anyone would have had room for self-talk, it would have been Paul. Remember, he was being held as a criminal unjustly. It would have been so easy for him to begin talking to himself with statements like this. All my Christian acquaintances are just fair-weather friends. They don't really care about me because they're free. They're, they're able to live their lives out there. They don't even realize that it's my service for them that has caused me to get arrested. They don't really care about me. But Paul refused to believe the worst. That's why Paul was such a good friend. He really loved. He believed the best. He refused to engage in negative self-talk. Negative self-talk is so damaging because it's based on unsubstantiated assumptions. Paul was committed to believing the best. I encourage you to make that same commitment if you want to be a good friend, a good husband, a good wife. Refuse to engage in negative self-talk. It causes immense damage. Here in verse 10, Paul expressed his confidence in his friends. He knew they hadn't forgotten about him. They just didn't have the opportunity to demonstrate their love and demonstrate their support. But now that things worked out for them to be able to send this man named Epaphroditus to make the journey to Rome to minister to Paul and to deliver the gift from the Philippians, Paul expresses his appreciation. But he doesn't want his words to be misunderstood. He doesn't want them thinking that his thank you means that he's in desperate need and he wants more. So he immediately follows with verse 11 where he says, not that I speak in regard to need. In other words, he's just said in verse 10, I, 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 we want to paraphrase, I really thank you for your love and your support, sending Paphroditus and that gift. But he's afraid that they'll take that to mean, man, Paul was desperate. We need to do something else for him. He says, no, no, not that I speak in regard to need. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Interestingly, the word content here at the end of this verse literally means self-sufficient. 
But Paul makes it clear in verse 13 that his self-sufficiency was actually Christ-sufficiency. Because he says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in context, he is saying, I can handle any situation in life because Christ gives me strength. That's why Paul could be content. The Stoics use this word to refer to a calm acceptance of life's pressures. That's a great quality to have. The ability to accept life's pressures calmly. That's contentment. That's what Paul says he had learned. And because he had learned that, Paul was a thermostat, not a thermometer. A thermometer doesn't change anything around it. It just registers the temperature. It's always going up and down. But a thermostat regulates the surroundings and changes them when they need to be changed. Paul was a thermostat. Instead of having spiritual ups and downs as the situation of life changed, he went right on steadily doing his work and serving Christ. Just putting one foot in front of the other, going ahead marching on with endurance. He had learned to be content. The Bible has quite a bit, about to, quite a bit to say about this important virtue called contentment. Go back with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, for just a moment. Luke chapter 3. This records the ministry of John the baptizer. And notice in verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? Now think about this. Here, Paul, the, these soldiers, what, what should we do? What's the most important thing here just to demonstrate genuine repentance in our lives, that there's been a change in our hearts? And what does John the baptizer say? He said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. John recognized the importance of this rare virtue. Look at what Jesus said over in chapter 12 of this same gospel. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. That's a warning we all need to take heed to in life. Following this same theme, look at Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
And notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Isn't that an interesting statement? It, it almost implies you can be a godly person and yet, unfortunately, lack contentment. In other words, you could be a person who seeks to live a holy life. That, that is, you won't allow yourself to be pulled into sin. You're not, never going to go out and get drunk. You're not going to commit adultery. You're never going to kill anyone. You're, you know, you're going to be holy in that sense, or you're going to be godly, but it doesn't automatically mean you have contentment. So Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you want to know what it means to be truly rich, this verse says it. True wealth is godliness coupled with contentment. If you have those two things, you're rich. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Boy, have I seen that happen to people through the years. They pierce themselves through with many sorrows because they refuse to be content. One more passage, Hebrews 13. Over, Keep going to the right. Before the book of James, Hebrews chapter 13. Let your, verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Those are two of the first verses I ever memorized as a teenager. Be content with such things as you have. Paul was. But unfortunately, he doesn't have a lot of company. Contentment is such a rare virtue. I've used this illustration in the past, but it really fits here. There was a king who had everything. I mean, he was king, he was the monarch, he had everything, but he wasn't content. So he sent his servants throughout his kingdom to find a content man, and he instructed them to bring back the man's shirt, thinking that by wearing that shirt would somehow bring him contentment. After many days, the servants returned, and they said to the king, We found only one content man in all your kingdom. One! To which the king replied, well, give me his shirt. And the servants replied, he doesn't own one. Contentment is a rare virtue, especially in our culture. Beloved, do you realize that the purpose of much, I won't say all, but the purpose of a lot of advertising in our culture is to create discontentment in you? That's the purpose of so much of the advertising. Before advertising came along in our society, people bought things for one primary reason. They needed them. That's why. But now, people buy things for a variety of reasons, and one of the major ones is because they are discontent. It is not at all uncommon. 
I hear this, I hear this regularly. It is not at all uncommon for people to buy things because they're depressed. They think that'll lift them out of their depression or because they're disappointed or because they're discontent with life. Our culture actually pr- promotes discontentment and it makes it difficult to be content in life. But it can be learned. And don't miss that point. Paul says in Philippians 4, his wording is instructive. Paul says, I have learned. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He learned that. That encourages me because it tells me that even Paul needed to learn things in life, so I shouldn't get discouraged when I see things in my life that need improvement and growth. We can learn to be content. It's not a natural character trait for any of us because we're naturally self-centered, self-focused, but contentment can be learned. Evidently, Paul wasn't like this immediately after he was saved and converted. He wasn't like this all, all the time or from the very beginning. He learned it through spiritual growth and experience. What were the keys to his attitude of contentment? I believe he tells us in Philippians chapter 1. Go back to Philippians and look at chapter 1 where he gives us two key ingredients to his contentment. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former, and by the way, if you're using NASB, NIV, ESV, these next two verses are going to be flip-flopped. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. In those verses, we see that Paul had come to experientially trust in the sovereignty of God. God is in control. Remember, Paul wrote these words as a prisoner in Rome. He has been under house arrest for a couple years. Prior to that, a couple years in Israel. So maybe by this time he's been uh, unjustly incarcerated for close to five years. Now just think back five years ago from right now in your life. Think back five years ago. And what would your attitude be if for the last five years you had been unjustly held, incarcerated, imprisoned? Paul says, I I can rejoice because the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. God is using this for good. Now, Paul, if he had his preference, would have wanted to be free. But he said, I trust the sovereignty of God. He's got a plan. I don't always know why he does what he does, but I trust his plan. Nothing happens outside of his control. So we can be content with our lot in life if we we embrace life that way. So ingredient number one, key number one, he trusted in the sovereignty of God, but that's not all. Number two, verse 20, he says, 
according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those verses give us the second ingredient that made up Paul's recipe for contentment. And that it is this. He boiled all of life down to the fundamental issue of magnifying Christ in his life. Whether he was free or whether he was incarcerated, whether he was sick or whether he was healthy, whether he was married or whether he was single, whatever, whatever. He boiled all of life down to the fundamental issue of magnifying and living for Christ. And beloved, if we learn, if we learn to, number one, trust in the sovereignty of God. And number two, if we learn to boil life down to the fundamental issue of magnifying and living for Christ in whatever he allows to come our way, then we will have learned the secret of being content. That's what Paul learned. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And now he expands on that. I, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere, in all, and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul is saying, listen, by God's grace, I have learned to handle suffering, suffering need, and, and also to handle prosperity. Paul could handle suffering need, or experiencing need, and prosperity. Now, we don't have any trouble picturing Paul lacking in basic necessities and experiencing need. But we have a hard time picturing Paul experiencing abundance and prosperity. It's not hard for us to see Paul in the gutter, but we can't see him in the penthouse. Yet Paul says he experienced both. That's hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to believe because we've somehow come to think. Now, look at this in your own life and see if it's true. We've somehow come to think that if someone has abundance, then he's sinned. He's compromised in some way to get it. That is wrong thinking. Let me illustrate this from the life of Joseph. Go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 41. Genesis chapter 41 if you know the story of Joseph's life, then you know he was suddenly exalted from slavery to prosperity. And notice in Genesis 41, verse 39, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was plucked out of prison and placed over all the land of Egypt. That's incredible geographic authority. But it doesn't stop there. Joseph is given incredible economic authority as well. Look at verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. The signet ring was the way Pharaoh approved financial transactions. 
It was like having Pharaoh's signature on a rubber stamp that could be used at will. In addition, he now wears garments of royalty and he even has a gold chain around his neck. If you have a hard time thinking about a child of God being in this kind of position, then the next verse is really going to bother you. Because verse 43 says, And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried, cried out before him, Bow the knee! So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Joseph even had his own company car. You could even say it was his personal limousine. And then verse 44 tells us, Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. This kind of authority, this kind of wealth is hard to imagine. If Joseph were to come to our church, would you treat him suspect? I bet many would. If you saw Joseph walk in, garments of royalty, he pulls up on, you know, personal limousine chariot, gold chain around his neck. Many people would look at him with a jaundiced eye. They would assume that he had to compromise to get that kind of position. He had to compromise to get that kind of wealth. They would hold his authority against him. People probably in our church would hold his wealth against him. That's the partiality that James 2 talks about in reverse. James 2 talks about partiality because you look down on people who don't have and you say, oh, sit at my footstool. Well, it's, this is in reverse. It's looking down on people because they do have. Remember, Joseph didn't compromise to get, in, get, get to this position. He didn't manipulate anyone. He didn't manipulate circumstances to get in this position. He didn't try to bargain with God to get this. He didn't ask for it. He didn't even see it coming. He was all of a sudden thrust into the place of authority and prosperity. J. Oswald Sanders, who has written one of the best books on spiritual leadership in print, said this, quote, Not every man can carry a full cup. Sudden elevation frequently leads to pride and a fall. The most, now listen to this statement, the most exacting test of all to survive is prosperity, end quote. Plutarch lived in the first century, and he watched the abuse of power among the Romans. He wrote this, No beast is more savage than man when possessed with power. Joseph passed the test. His sudden change from slavery to prosperity didn't give him a big head, he didn't tell people to bow the knee. Others said that. Joseph knew that pride goes before destruction. So he passed the test involving the change from slavery to prosperity. He kept the right attitude, the right priorities in life. We were in 1 Timothy 6 a little bit ago. Turn back there again and look at some of the later verses in that chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 6 down near the end, verse 17. Paul says to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. 
that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. He's not saying so that they could gain or earn eternal life. So that they lay hold on it in the sense of that's what they've gripped their, that's what they've grasped to hold on to, to look at, to be the grid through which they live their lives. So Paul says here, there's nothing wrong with being prosperous if your attitude and priorities are right. But so often, prosperity changes our attitudes. Prosperity can affect our priorities. Carlyle was right when he said this, Adversity is hard on a man, but for one who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred who can stand adversity. Did you hear that? For one who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred who can stand adversity. Paul could handle both. The church at Laodicea couldn't. They embraced the wrong attitude about their prosperity. In Revelation 3.17, Jesus said their attitude was this, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's the wrong attitude about prosperity. Paul had learned how to handle adversity And Paul had learned how to handle prosperity. Now, what about you? Have you learned how? Or are you committed to learning how to handle adversity and prosperity? I mean, it's an obvious statement to say this, but no one here in this room, not a one of us, knows our future. Not a one of us. Tomorrow, life could change drastically for any one of us. In either direction, next week, next month, next year, you could become totally poverty-stricken. Or through some set of circumstances, you could become fairly wealthy. You, have, you really don't know. You don't know what the future holds. So can you handle adversity and prosperity? Whichever God in His sovereignty and good purposes sees fit to direct your path? Can you say with Paul, all that matters to me is that Christ is magnified in my body. For to me, to live is Christ. If you can't say that, if you can't say that, then you won't, from Philippians chapter 1, then you won't be able to say from Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. Contentment can be learned, but it's like any other virtue in the Christian life. We can't learn it if we don't apply ourselves. You don't just get it from osmosis. You can't, you know, type out the word contentment on a piece of paper, print it off your computer, slide it under your pillow, and sleep on it and think that you're going to be content. You, You know it doesn't work that way. We don't get it through osmosis. We don't get it that way. We have to apply ourselves so that we can say with Paul, I have learned. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. What a virtue, especially in our day and age of discontent. Beloved, let me assure you, if you are a content person, if you are a content person, you will stand out 
in life. Whatever your circle is, if people look, sometimes we think, well, you know, for me to be a good witness or really to be effective or something, you know, I got to have some, something dramatic about my life. There has to be just something dramatic that stands out, you know, like I'm, in a, I'm, a, in a, I, I'm a professional athlete or, you know, I'm something, well, if God wants you to be a professional athlete, fine. But you really want to stand out in society? Do everything without grumbling and complaining and be content. And let me tell you, you will be different. You will be way different than this lost society around us. And you will shine as a light for Jesus Christ. Let's bow together as we close. Father, what a great challenge to our hearts from Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4. And thank you even for his wording that encourages us when he says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. It, it reminds us that it's not beyond our reach, that it's not something that was just automatic in Paul's life from the moment he was converted. It, it wasn't just something innate. It was something he learned. And we too can learn that rare virtue. So enable us to be, equip us to be Grant us the grace to be people who live life without grumbling and complaining and who live life just demonstrating a contentment. How rare we will be in this dark society. We want to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to represent him well. We want others to see Christ in us. We want others to see the difference that Christ makes. And certainly that is seen in our lives when we uh, when we don't run with the crowd that, that is, is involved in sinful activities and, and we stand out in that way, but remind us that we also stand out greatly just by being people who are content. People who have a joyful contentment in life instead of a complaining attitude, a discontentment that so characterizes our day and age. So grant us the grace to live for Christ in that way, to be a testimony, a witness in that way so that others see the difference that Christ makes. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.